All right. Is it just me or are you guys asleep this morning? Okay, let's wake up. (laughs) Y'all about as energetic as, well, I'm going to stop before I get in trouble. Okay, let's wake up. We got some serious business to do today. We're going to be in Habakkuk 3. And so first I'm going to read the chapter to us. And then we're going to do, uh, I guess, a little more explaining than usual. This is not uh, immediately clear to the reader. You've got to dig a little bit to figure out what exactly Habakkuk is referencing and talking about. Habakkuk chapter 3. I'm going to give you a second in case you're flipping to it in a paper Bible. Most of us don't have our Bibles falling open to Habakkuk. All right. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigionot. Now, um, I study many, many, many hours every week of Hebrew. And the only good that I have found that it has done so far is, I know how to say that word. <laughs> okay, so I had to, you know, had to lay that out there. Um, oh Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. Oh Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covered the mountains, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways." I saw the tents of Cushion in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers? Or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariots of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging water swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Selah. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound, rottenness enters into my bones, my legs tremble beneath me, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us." Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on the high places. To the choir master with stringed instruments. So, you may wonder, why is a psalm stuck in the middle of the, or at the end of this little prophetic book? Um, 
I don't know, but apparently uh, Habakkuk was a singer and was a psalmist, and he wanted to express his worship after he had spoken to the Lord. Now remember, he had found out that the Lord, he said, God, why aren't you doing anything? There is rampant evil in our land, and you're not doing anything about it, and the bad guys are getting away with all kind of stuff. And God said, just hang on, I am going to bring judgment. Not only am I going to bring judgment, but I'm going to bring judgment by a nation that is even more wicked than this one. And so that was a moment of consternation for Habakkuk. He said, well, wait a minute. If they're even worse than we are, how are you going to use them to judge us? And God said, hey, they're, they're my tool. I'm going to use them for judgment. And then, don't worry, I will judge them as well. Uh, we don't have to wonder if God is going to provide justice. Now, sometimes justice is delayed. We don't always see it occurring before our eyes. But when everything is said and done, God's justice will be complete and perfect. Now, guys, preaching is supposed to expose the scriptures. It is supposed to take what scripture says and make it clearer and more accessible to us. When that is accomplished, the preacher should give general application of the text But that is when your job happens, and your job is specific application of the text to your own life. So if you'll keep these things in mind, uh, I think we'll have more productive Sunday mornings. You know, we don't come in here to just, it's part of our duty to uh, go through this ritual of singing and then listening to a guy talk. We want the scriptures to become more clear, and then we want to take what we learn and apply that. So um, if you want to better understand the scripture yourself, please listen with your brain fully engaged and then we'll be able to understand and apply this stuff. Let's see together this morning that Habakkuk asked God for his continued active presence. In verse 1 he says, A prayer to, of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigyanoth. Who or what is that? I don't know. And so I looked in my commentaries at smart folks who know the language really well, and they don't know either. Uh, It is perhaps a musical term. Uh, You know, we have spoken before of the word selah that is in the Psalms and in this Psalm as well, and that perhaps it means a reflective pause so that we consider what was just done while the instruments play. Well, this is a musical term as well, and we have no idea what it means. Okay, so... Uh, at verse 2, he says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. So see, he's saying, I heard about all this stuff. Now I want you to revive it now. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. So he's heard of the Lord's mighty deeds in the past. And what he is looking for is those mighty deeds to occur again in his present. Then he wisely tempers that request for justice with a request for God to remember mercy in his wrath. Have you ever wondered, and I I know we don't wonder this out loud because it's not the right thing to say, but have you ever wondered why we study the Old Testament? I mean, the New Testament reveals Christ to us. And Christ is a further and a better and a more complete revelation of who God is than anything we see in the Old Testament, right? So considering that the New Testament is, is more clear revelation of who God is, why do we study the Old Testament? Well, one reason is that we need to study the Old Testament in our society and in our churches. We have largely forgotten a huge, crucial aspect of the nature of God. 
what we've forgotten about is God's wrath. Uh, you know, we, uh, the world even loves little baby Jesus, right? Because <laughs> he's not very scary. But when we read this Old Testament account of God's appearance and his might and his judgment, that is an aspect of God that we have so much forgotten in our day. You know, Baptists talk about being saved. Uh, if you had been at the fair yesterday, or if you were at the fair yesterday, uh, I, I personally don't ask anybody if they're saved. You know why? Because everybody's saved. <laughs> they don't know what they're saved from. Uh, they don't know why they're saved. They don't know how they're saved. But they know that word, and they'll tell you they're saved. Well, what are we saved from? We are saved from God's wrath, from the wrath and judgment of the holy, holy, holy God. We need to realign our thinking about God from this, you know, concept of a benevolent grandpa to what we will read in this chapter. In the novel by C.S. Lewis, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the character Aslan is a lion who represents Jesus Christ. Listen to this quote from the book that should help us understand why the prophet would ask for justice, but then very wisely include a plea for God to remember mercy. Lewis writes, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Safe would not be the word to describe our God. That is why I'm so thankful for his great mercy. In verses 3 through 7, the prophet describes the arrival of the Lord in his awe-inspiring majesty when he came to Mount Sinai. Verse 3 says, God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. Now you'll probably remember that scholars believe Selah to be that musical term. And we, we think that it may mean, among other things, it might mean, uh, hey, we're going to change keys and go to something else. It may mean we're going to pause and reflect on what was just said. But there's always something very impactful before that Selah. And so, uh, you know, he may have said, hey, God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. Think about that for a minute while the instrumentals play. <laughs> now, to us, we may be going, I don't even know what he's talking about, so I, don't, I can't ponder that. We have to look and see what Mount Teman and Mount Paran are. In Deuteronomy, and you, you don't have to flip there, it'll be on the screen. In Deuteronomy 33, 2, Moses is recalling the events at Mount Sinai. And when he does, he said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. So that explains the Mount Paran reference is talking about when he appeared on Sinai. Um, Seir, though, which Moses mentions, was a poetic name for the mountain region referred to as Teman. So if we don't know that when we're reading along, uh, you know, if Habakkuk had just said Mount Sinai, we'd all go, oh, okay, I know what he's talking about. Uh, but he doesn't. And so then we got to dig a little bit. And that's why Bible study and, and Bible reading are sort of different things. I mean, if you have a good study Bible, when you're reading through this, and you see these references and you're like, I'm not sure what he's talking about. Let me encourage you to take a second to look at the notes so that you can get your mind oriented about what he's talking about. Finishing verse 3, his splendor 
covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. The Israelites who witnessed the Lord's appearance at Mount Sinai, they did not have to be told that God is not this teetering old grandpa figure, right? (laughs) They knew beyond a shadow of a doubt how awesome and frightening the Lord was. They were awestruck, and the earth was full of his praise. We need to see the biblical God for who he is, who he is revealed to be in Scripture. If we don't worship the God revealed in Scripture, then we've made an idol and we're worshiping that idol. And we definitely do not want to do that. Verse 4, his brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. You know, it talks about his brightness, but also his veiled power. We can, you know, the sun warms the earth and and gives us light. But let's think about if we were closer to the sun, it would burn us to a crisp. (laughs) If we were introduced to the sun, if we were taken to the sun, it would completely vaporize the planet. So the Lord is awesome and majestic. Plague and pestilence were tools that God used to deliver Israelites, the Israelites from bondage in Egypt not long before this event at Mount Sinai. So everything that Habakkuk is talking about is he's talking about the Exodus and what followed. In Exodus 9, 1 through 3, we read this. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, Behold, the, land of the, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. Plague is something that people have feared since the dawn of man. And in their fear, what they did was they made these idols and made these gods up who would be the Lord of the harvest or the Lord of the rivers and the, the floods and things like that. That way they could feel like they've got a little bit of control on nature, which they can't control. And so they would make up a God, serve that God in order to placate him from these natural disasters. And when they would come, they had an excuse and a reason for that. They'd say, well, this God is unhappy with us. All of these aspects of life that the Egyptians sought to control through their idols and their false gods the whole time was and is under the control of our sovereign God. Our God was showing them and glorifying himself through their rebellion. So he was showing them that, hey, these gods that you made up to control these things, they can't do it. Only I can do it. I can bring pestilence whenever I choose. I can bring locusts whenever I choose. I can bring hailstorms whenever I choose to do so. And you know, even in their rebellion... Our God is so sovereign that that glorified him. Each of our lives are going to bring glory to God one way or the other. He'll either receive glory from extending to us his amazing grace, or he will receive glory through properly judging and and with great justice our sins. So he's going to judge our sins in us and glorify himself that way. Or he's going to extend to us amazing mercy and glorify himself in that manner. You get to decide which way God is going to glorify himself through you. Back to Habakkuk 3. Verse 6 says, He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered 
The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of cushion in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Now these are more references to the upheaval experienced at the Lord's appearance at Mount Sinai. Look with me again. Well, you can look on the board. Back in Exodus, in chapter 19 this time. Starting in verse 16, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. God's appearance was so striking and so magnificent that Habakkuk is saying that the mountains and hills that seemed eternal and unmovable, uh, they start quavering in fear at the presence of the Lord because he's the actual eternal one. So these mountains that seem so formidable and these hills that seem eternal, when God shows up, they quake in his presence because he is the only one that is truly eternal. Cushion and Midian were southern nomadic tribes, and it says that they, even though they weren't close, were still awestruck by what God was doing at Mount Sinai. I really hope that you're starting to get the picture that God is not, all of his aspects are not revealed in the little sweet baby Jesus. You know, <laughs> we need to understand that this God, this God, humbled himself to become man. That makes it so much more amazing. You know, when we talk about grace, if I were to offend Jimmy and Jimmy forgave me, that might be grace. But it's one sinful man and another sinful man. When we have offended God, this God described here, and he chooses to forgive us, that's amazing. And when we see what it costs him, that's when it's so incredible that it should make our, our response one of genuine, heartfelt worship. So if we don't see a real picture of God, then we can't be nearly as amazed by His grace. The God who is fearful, awe-inspiring, and magnificent is the God that we serve. He's the God to whom we offer praise. So think about that. Next time we're standing here or sitting here and we're singing praise to God... Let's remember, we're not singing just to make a pretty sound. We're not singing to encourage Jimmy. We're not, we are singing to the Lord himself. And so that should inspire awe and reverence and joy. And so if next time we're singing, you stand there and you're thinking, uh, man, I wonder, I hope the oven comes on and bakes those potatoes at home. Let's focus on the fact that we are in the presence of this God. And we have the opportunity to come and bring him praise. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We really need to regain a full picture of God that gives us the proper fear and respect and awe of him. Then it will be properly astonishing to us when we read in John 15.15 where Jesus said, No longer do I call you servants. For the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. 
When you consider God revealing himself at Mount Sinai and those people being terrified and the very mountains quaking before them and then you see Jesus saying, I don't call you servants anymore, I call you friends. Isn't that unbelievable? In Habakkuk 3, 8 through 15, we read this. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses? On your chariots of salvation, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows, Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept up. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. Okay, a little side note. If the ocean, okay, if the Red Sea here can um, give forth its voice and lift its hands on high then maybe even you could become un, un, unmovable <laughs> when you worship. <laughs> okay, The Red Sea was, was lifting its voice and its hands in worship. So you be free to do the same. Okay, It seems unmovable, and some of you do too, but we can do it. The sun and the moon stood still in their place. At the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck, Selah. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. So drawing on some of the same imagery from the Exodus, now Habakkuk describes God as a mighty divine warrior. Now we're not supposed to get the idea that God has actual bows and arrows. and you know, We're not supposed to uh, think that he's a guy like us and has a physical body and all that kind of stuff. But this imagery helps us see that God is willing and eminently able to to judge those whom he chooses to judge. He can judge his enemies. He can judge his servants when we deserve it. And he can defend his people. We know that the rivers of Egypt were turned to blood and the sea was split in two to allow the Israelites to cross over dry land. So that's what this imagery is hearkening back to. God can and has caused earthquakes. There's even an episode where God had the sun and moon stand still that we can read about from Joshua 10. Our God is unimaginably powerful. Verse 16, he says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. He has seen God and remembered God in his power and might. Then he says, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. Habakkuk sees the power of this creator, warrior God, and he trembles with fear in his presence. He also realizes, though, that he can trust this God to do what he has promised to do. 
God will bring judgment on his people for their sins, but he will also in due time bring judgment to those who oppress and destroy God's people. He knows that very different times lie ahead. You know, God is going to judge his people for their sin, but he's going to use an even more wicked nation to do so. Now, let me ask you, in all fairness and objectivity, does America deserve judgment? We deserve judgment for so many things, but I'll mention just a few of them. Um, It's hard for me to get my head around this, but listen. There are somewhere between two and 3,000 abortions per day in this country. Two and 3,000, somewhere between there, per day. Those who survive the dangers of the womb are regularly murdered in our country as well. There were an average of about 42 and a half murders per day in the U.S. last year. And that's not, of course, counting the murders by abortion that we just saw. The sexual revolution has come to its full fruition. You know, guys, churches are now being threatened by major Democrat presidential candidates that if we dare to continue to call sin, sin, they're going to take away our tax-exempt status and try to destroy the church. Now, I'm not trying to be partisan. I'm telling you a fact. (laughs) The religious liberty that actually is in our Constitution is increasingly so quickly being eclipsed by this newly invented sexual liberty. Where the two intersect, we are seeing more and more and more regularly that religious liberty is the one that loses. We need to pray and work for revival. How do we work for it? We do the one thing that actually can change the hearts and minds of people. We share the gospel with them. I wish so much that some of you had been able to just watch what happened yesterday at the fair. I had numerous conversations. Zero of them were unpleasant. Uh, I think that we think this is scary to go and share your faith. Guys, I can't convince you um, fully without you seeing it, how not scary it is. Um, Miss Carolyn was hanging out with me during one of those encounters and I got to share the gospel completely with a guy who was standing there waiting on his little kids to finish in the jump. Uh, This other guy, I got to share the gospel with him and about halfway through his his significant other pulled the kid out and was like, hey, let's go. And he said, no, no, I'm I'm talking, let her play some more. (laughs) And he stayed there an additional 10 minutes because he had heard, uh, he had heard about the law. He had responded according to that, and he had said, oh, I'm kind of in trouble, aren't I? Because I was telling him about the Ten Commandments, and he was, he was seeing how he measured up against those Ten Commandments. He wasn't doing too good. <laughs> and then I started to tell him how Jesus came to pay the penalty for those sins. And then his, you know, the lady came up and said, hey, let's go. And he said, oh, I got, <laughs> you've let her play. I've got to hear the rest of this. And I was able to finish sharing the gospel with him. And then able to give him a tract and say, hey, think about these things. And he said, man, I'm going to think about these things. And so when we share our faith, even if it were scary, even if it were illegal, even if we were dragged off to jail for doing it, it wouldn't change our instructions. But the fact is that right now we have the freedom to do it. If they place their faith in Christ and repent of their sins, then what do we do? We baptize them and we disciple them. 
That's how we're going to bring about lasting change in the hearts and minds of people. No politician is going to change the hearts and minds of people. I don't care who they are. I would imagine that most of you successfully voted in your preferred candidate of the options that you had for president in 2016. How has the other side responded? (laughs) Are they more at peace now? Absolutely not, because no politician is going to change the hearts and minds of people. It's not within their ability. That is the Lord's business. We have got to realize, though, that the Lord is willing and able to change the hearts and minds of people. And that he chose to use us as the means by which people hear the gospel. Now, God could have sent an angel to to come and declare the gospel that would be so powerful and and majestic and awe-inspiring that everybody would pay attention and listen. He could have written it in the clouds. He could have done a million things to get the gospel to people. What he chose was you and me. And then we decide whether we're going to obey or not. But you know, that's, a, that's kind of a crazy thing. Because we call him Lord, Lord. Jesus said we ought to do what he says, right? That is why I'm so looking forward to November 16th. That's really soon. Really soon. What is that? Is that two or three weeks from now? Three weeks. All right, three weeks from yesterday. Guys, we talked about this. And almost every one of you came up front and committed to be here that day. Do not lose that commitment. It's not going to be convenient, okay? You'll find some excuse between now and then not to come. Don't use it. You know that we committed as a body to come here, to be taught the importance of sharing our faith, to be taught how to share our faith. Come, 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 please, on November 16th. If God does not bring revival, then he will indeed bring judgment. When the judgment comes, it's going to hurt. (laughs) You know, I don't know if he'll bring judgment through another nation as he did here with his people. Or whether he'll bring uh, judgment through us adopting a socialist government. I don't know what he's going to do. But I know that when it comes, it won't be fun for any of us. I'm going to venture to say that most of us do not have our money tied up in figs and grapes and olives or any other kind of produce that was mentioned in verses 17 and following. Think about this, though. If verse 17 read like this, it might be a little more scary to us. What if it said, though the stock market should crash, nor money be left in Social Security, the produce of the investments fail, and the money yield no interest, the food be cut off from the stores, and there be no value in the dollar, If that happens, will you still be able to say, verse 18, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. If you won't be able to say that, then I suggest you get as ready as you can. I also suggest that you pray for and work for revival. Because Habakkuk reminded us in verse 2 that the Lord's wrath is sometimes combined with great mercy. So the application for us today in general is this. We need to, as a church and as individual people, reacquaint ourselves with the reality of this aspect of who God is. Be sure that you will be safely hidden in the righteousness of Christ when you do meet this God. 
Guys, I don't want you to meet this guy that we read about in judgment with no cover, with no protection. In Noah's day, Noah and his family were in the ark. They were safe. Everybody else fell under the direct judgment of God. Are you in that ark of safety? Are you in the Lord Jesus? If you are, then when God's judgment rains down and when you meet him, you'll be perfectly safe. If you are not in that ark, if you're not in Christ, it will be more terrifying than any of us can begin to imagine. Let's pray for revival and let's work for revival. I said earlier that your life will glorify God in one of two ways. He will either receive glory from extending you mercy and forgiveness, or God will be glorified through his righteous judgment of you. I also said that you get to choose. Well, now is the time that you get to choose. Let me tell you, God is just. And because he is just, he cannot just ignore sin. He must punish sin. And he will either punish your sin by punishing you or that fire (laughs) that is going to fall one day already fell on Christ and he paid for it on your behalf. So if you're here today and you're not absolutely sure that you are safely in that ark, please don't leave here without that. If you are sure, then let's take that message to other people. Guys, I can't tell you how how much I have prayed for November 16th. Jimmy has prayed for November 16th. We are hoping. Now, guys, November 16th is not the the end of anything. It's the beginning of something. (laughs) It's going to be a tangible show of our repentance from complacency to obedience. It's going to be us here learning and being equipped to do what we are absolutely clearly called to do in the Word of God. That is, to take the faith that we have and share it with other people. Guys, we need to tell them that a flood is coming and that there's an ark for them to get into.